There's a baby grasping at the microphone right now. One hey. of me recording. It is recording. <laughs> hey, what do patriotic monkeys wave on Flag Day? Who? What? The Star Spangled Banana. Uh, mm. just... Why is the empty purse always the same? Why? Because there's never any change in it. Hey, you know, I'm actually kind of surprised you uh, showed up today. Why is that? Because I thought the dodo bird was extinct. <laughs> Matt, bullying exists online and in person. And you have just. Of course, proved... of course it's not a laughing matter. What is it? Bullying. What are you, you're reading something. Uh, what are you reading? So I found my dad or my parents are cleaning out their basement. Yeah. And there's just a ton of uh, boxes of old books down there. Yeah. And they found and brought me like a 700-page old kids' joke book. The big book of jokes and riddles. I remember having it in grade school, thinking it was hilarious. Did you write <laughs> Looking back, I was probably pretty unsufferable because these are the type of jokes I thought were really funny. But I'm flipping through it. It's seriously, it's like 550 pages. The page I see, it looks pretty tattered. Like you've been... Well, it's from like the 60s. It was like my dad's. It's like a young George Carlin right there. Just, uh, yeah. you know. Their illustrations, it's great. It's, I'm totally going to keep it. It's funny because he's cleaning out his base. He's like, I'm just going to get rid of... Uh, I don't think your son wants you to keep it because he just screamed. Yeah, he screams anyway. He's like, Dad's jokes are so bad. <laughs> so bad. So it's going to be his joke book here soon. <laughs> no, so my dad's like, I'll just get rid of all those uh, no. books. I'm like, hold up. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Let, me, let me look. And I have a tough time with stuff Did like Did you go that. back to Kansas? No, and this is, I've had this for like a month or so, but yeah, okay. I finally like, came to my attention. So I took, I've been taking a handful every time and I'm always like, hold on, don't get rid of the books. Let me, let me look. And he's like, I'm serious about cleaning out the basement. I'm like, you've been saying that for 10 years, but I guess they're really serious this time. But he's got, there's a ton of stuff down there and it's really cool. And he's got a lot of like theological books and stuff, but even those, they've been in a box for 30 years, you know, but even like, you know, Hugh Highsmith's uh, 1967 study of the book of Acts from the Bible. Wow. Like, I'm like, ah, I'd be ashamed to let that go. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I can't, I can't, I was like, ah, I don't want to get rid of that. I'll take that. Um, uh, how was your wife's reaction to uh, adding more books to your already uh, the bookcase? She's pretty cool about it. What? She's pretty cool about it. Cool. Yeah, she lets me have my thing and then <laughs> I bought a bookcase like 10 bucks at a yard sale recently uh the other day why didn't yeah. you text me uh i tweeted a picture oh there you go i should have texted you there's another one for 20 bucks because i know. need another bookcase or Do two you? or three should have texted you yeah it's real i thought we were podcast bros <laughs> it just turns out we're just bros i just i was being selfish i apologize what, what? So the joke book is, um, is that a daily thing you go to? It's sort of a... Oh, it's a coffee table book now. It's uh, toothpicks made out of steel for beavers who get wood stuck in their teeth. doesn't make any sense. I, I, I'm not sure I can hear any more of these. I'll be honest. 
Teacher, Arnold, what would you like to do today? Arnold, graduate. He's pretty eager to get out. Oh, man. We've had a good run. We've had a good run. What always has the flu but is never sick? The chimney. Ooh, uh, that works. This says a furnace. But yeah, chimney, that's the... You know how bad of a book it is when uh, someone can guess the riddle, whatever that is? Yeah. Joke? Yeah. Or you have the humor of a five-year-old. And on that note, welcome to There Will Be Books, a podcast about books and humor. I'm Peter, joined as always by Matt. Matt, what are we doing tonight? Having fun, telling jokes. Having fun, <laughs> telling jokes, talking about books, teaching classes. Yes. Yes. Our, our last uh, college course that we created last fall was so popular. People just left and right being like, when are you going to do another one? I want to take, I want to take the next course. I just we finally gave in and we're doing spring semester. Spring semester. There's yeah. only like a couple of weeks. These are very quick classes, but uh, sign know. up now. Because it's still spring, spring semester. Spring 2022. Don't, don't overthink it. This is this spring. Uh, uh, spring semester. These are classes we would like to teach or take kind of both in my part. Um, any kind of ground rules or any sort of, uh, I don't know, limits to what we can do here? No, no. I, mine, what I did, I designed like a course that I, I could teach that I would like to take, just like a cool course, I think it's related to the one I did last semester. I have six books, a short story and three movies kind of you, arranged you around. Got you in the movies. It's like, you just love the movies. They're educational there and they go with the theme. It's, it's silly not to add them in. Right. So yeah, we both have courses. I am most confident about what my final project is. Most confident. When I, when I tell you, you're going to be jealous and you're going to sign up for the course. You always make everything a competition. It is. Life's you know? a competition. Because kids take more than one class. They can take both our classes. You make it seem like they have to choose between one or the All other. All right. Well, um, by the way, what level of course do you have here? This is a 300-level seminar. Mine's 400-level. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good. You had a good course no, last year. I would have either. totally taken your your World War II in literature. Yeah, of course. Yes. Yeah. This one's uh, this is another doozy. My God. Yeah. You want to? I go? tell you my one of the. I had a couple other ideas I was uh, thinking about, but I couldn't flush them out as sure, well. Sure. Um, one was going to be called Labyrinth Literature, and it was going to be okay. about sort of books that are kind of like labyrinths or confusing or structurally kind oh, of sure. bizarre. Yeah. What about that? Yeah. Borges. Borges. The Borges on there. You yeah. know what? I saw Piranesi and I was like, you know what? Perfect. What about a class of that? But then I was like, yeah, there's too many things. There's a lot of stuff I haven't read. So it'd be hard to talk about. Yeah. But okay. I, that might, you know, that's uh, anyone out there has needs a, a college course to uh, teach labyrinth literature. Well, yeah. 200 level course so that's requisite is uh 
beginning creative writing, English 101. So pretty much nice second year. Anyway, anyway, did you, is this your idea, your only idea you had? You didn't. I have something in mind I'm going to do for summer school, like a, another course I could Ooh. have done. So I just, ru- I ruined my summer school course. Okay. Yeah. Well, you got time. We'll probably okay. do it in June. This is connected sort of loosely to my, my first one. And so yeah, the summer, so yeah, I have, I have one I'm not going to ruin okay. here for summer school, but yeah. Um, do you want me to start or do you want to start? Yeah, you go. I'm curious. Okay. Um, this course is going to be called The Unfinished Novel. Okay. And it's going to be broken up into kind of three different sections. Okay. Um, I only have three books, really. Okay. They're are the kind of the core elements of it. Um, so if you think about it, like an unfinished novel, it can happen for a variety of reasons. An author, uh, kind of the main reason being like the author just dies while they're, they're writing it. Yeah. Uh, another reason, and you know, they don't, it's like they don't see it happening. They just died. And this manuscript is just left unfinished. Yeah. Um, some, I mean, I guess they don't finish it, you know, when they die, that it's unfinished, whatever. But, um, sometimes an author works on a work for, um, two decades, three decades, four decades. It just never comes out. Um, and then they, they end up dying and it's, it's sort of like, they could have published that at some point in their life, but they just never, they yeah. just kept working on it. It's like, um, this isn't one of the books, but I think what was it? Michael Shabon. There's a story about he He wrote a book, yep. this like tomb of a book about what a baseball Am- team or something. Amusement parks. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And he turned that, that into wonder boys into wonder yeah. boys. So yeah, that's sort of like, if he had just worked on that massive book for the rest of his life, that could have been in contention. Yeah. Okay. And then there is the book that the author uh, explicitly says they want destroyed. They don't want published, but yeah, it. ends up becoming published. So you see how there's a kind of like yeah. different. What about going crazy from syphilis? What? <laughs> That's another reason you wouldn't finish a book. Is who did who went crazy from syphilis? Lots of dudes. Why did you say that? I was in such a Reason, my, uh, reasons not to finish a novel get out of my class all right come back in you're the only one you handle the, the truth so but you think those are kind of like three good like mm-hmm. interesting kind of um fields for this that is actually really interesting you brought that up because i had had it, it wasn't going to be a course it was just something mm-hmm. in my mind like unfinished works that you'd like to see because i've always thought i've heard that shaban story Mm -hmm. and i was i always thought like i would read that yeah you know what i mean like i'd just see what yeah like i I guess the one of the questions for the class is you know what in in that sort of the shape on uh like what what was it that was just i i I gather because the character the main character in wonder boys is uh an author struggling to finish his work and his novel yeah. So I think he just turned all that energy into Wonder Boy is a very good book. That might be my favorite. Shabon, it, it is very good. Um, anyway, book, yeah. Like, the book I was thinking is like is um, from Ralph Ellison, who wrote the classic Invisible Man in 1952. 
mm-hmm. and it was widely praised as considered a, a American classic. Um, he starts his next novel in 1954 or 1953 around that time. Never finishes the book. He spends about four decades on the book and dies, I believe in 1994. Um, the book, I have the, an actual copy. It was sort of edited and published uh, in 2010. It's three days before the shooting. And it's this massive book. And what is interesting about it is when they published it in 2010, they had, they had all these notes in it too. So you can kind of look at elements. And there's, from what I gathered, there's like sections that, you know, it's... It's a huge, it obviously needs more editing or whatever, and it's not finished, but you can, as a, as a, uh, a class, you can kind of see, you know, maybe where he was going, why it wasn't finished, what he was struggling with, those kind of questions, you yeah. know, and a, a, like a text like this, where you have those notes, I think is important for this class. So you can kind of see like, yeah. what's he struggling with? What's he trying to do? You know, what's not working, what's working, that kind of thing. They did release an edited um, uh, kind of edition. It's called Juneteenth. I think it was it was I want to say in the late '90s or something. So there was like a very a much smaller novel that yeah. was taken from this big this kind of big overarching uh, book. But the one I'm kind of interested in is Three Days Before the Shooting uh, by Ralph Ellison, and that's sort of the one where the author just works on it for. Um, essentially 40 years, 40 years. Never thought. Um, you know publishes a, a classic book and then he's trying to, to follow it up and then at one point there's a fire that destroys the manuscript now there's some debate as to whether um, I think some biographer said he actually had a whole copy that wasn't destroyed some people say he was so distraught by the work that was destroyed that he just could, couldn't like recapture that. Yeah. I'm not really sure, like you know, that'd be hard. What's true or what's not true? It could just be like you know, I, I saw something where it was like an, uh, it could have been an excuse not to finish the book. I, that seems kind of harsh, but anyway, there's a, there's a lot of different things. Um, the second example is you know the author just dies uh, mid book. Uh, and why this is kind of interesting is it was the book is the mystery of Edwin Drood by Charles Dickens. I don't know if I'm, and like Dickens, most, uh, most of his works is serialized. So people are reading it and it's a mystery. And then they, the book ends and there's no like conclusion or whatever. Yeah. I saw this thing on the internet. I don't know if it's true or not. Dickens, I guess, reached out to the queen to tell her how it was going to end because I think he knew he was going to die at whatever and she refused. So I don't know if that's true. Or not. She d- didn't like Dickens or because she wanted to wait like everybody else? I don't know. I didn't, it didn't so seem like she didn't really care to know. I don't know. Well, because I'm That I'm, might not be entirely tr- true either. But I'm working on a screenplay and I've reached out to the queen to see if she wants to read it like a beta reader. I haven't been back. But don't you think that's kind of a funny like story of like uh Yeah. Would you I like to know. know how it ends? I'm about to die. No. No, I'm good. Okay. Probably what killed him. So yeah, and then I think in the class you can um 
you know, kind of finish how the how the mystery would would end or whatever. Or, okay, so you're saying so they're going to read these books, and you mm -hmm. said creative writing was a prerequisite. So, are you going to kind of critique and be like, what do you think the hangups were? How would you finish it? What yeah, in a, in a sense. So, like, what yeah. what in the Ralph Ellison's case is like, what's he like? What do you think is the struggle with this novel? You know, what is he trying to say? Where, obviously, most of the times with a book that you can't finish, it's too long. It's got too much, too many uh, elements to it that you're trying to corral. Um, so, and then in the, sort of the Dickens thing, how would you finish the? I think the Dickens thing is kind of maybe the least interesting. Is you're a lot of people can just kind of come up with ways that a book ends, I guess. It's a little, it's just sort of a, it's another way, of like an unfinished novel, you know. Um, and then the third book is The Trial by Kafka. And this is the book that it seems like it's, it actually has an ending to it. The debate is Kafka explicitly said he wanted this destroyed and yet it is still published after he died. So I think this this part of the class is we get into like the ethics and there's a lot of other examples, not just Kafka, of where authors have stated they don't want stuff published after they've died and then it gets published, you know, um, yeah. and sort of the, is it worthwhile or is it sort of something that should be at a library or something where you can read these manuscripts, but they're not like for sale. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, and that's an interesting ethical conundrum, especially with like brilliant authors like yeah. and people who you could legitimately say these people have artistic merit. Mm -hmm. It's like you know, yeah, he said in his will destroy this manuscript, but you know, everybody else in his life is like, we're not going to do that. This is great. We're going to publish it. And what are the what are your ethical obligations? in that case that's fascinating actually. yeah so i think that's kind of the third element and the 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 paper that i i wanted to do and i don't really know the specifics of it but it's a it's a it's a tandem paper and how it's going to work is one person's going to start off the paper okay mm -hmm. stop working on it okay mm -hmm. Their, their partner is going to do the same thing. They can write about different subjects or whatever. And then they have to finish each other's paper. Yeah. Does that sound kind of fun? That's cool. And that's thematically appropriate. Yes. Yeah, I like that. Um, and it's sort of an exercise in, um, I don't know, in sort of the, the, the question of, you know, the overarching question is, do you finish these works that are incomplete? Do you just publish them half finished? Yeah. Or do you try to complete them with the notes that the author kind of, um, what's that? The wheel of time that Brandon yeah. Sanderson finished. Brandon Sanderson finished. Oh yeah. Yeah. Brandon Sanderson. And I think everybody's nervous about George R.R. R. Martin. Yeah. Finishing that seventh one. So, I think, and that's also an interesting question with like fantasy. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem like there's too much like pushback of, well, if we, if he's told someone, you know, the plot, the major plot points or whatever, and then someone else just has to go along and write it. I mean, 
I think there's probably some pushback, but I think people just want the story. You know what I mean? And that's what, it, and I'd read, hopefully he's fine and he finishes it eventually. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm on record here being, I'm pro author taking their time. Yeah. Like I'm not, I don't want to rush him because he cares what I think, but uh, yeah, I would, I would read if something happened and he couldn't quite finish the series, I would read, you know, Brandon Sanderson or whoever coming in and finishing it for him. I would read that book because I I would want to know. It's just like a tricky thing, I think, with the fantasy element to it. And I think that only happens with super popular stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like an author who has this their their second work, like Ellison. Yeah. You know, there probably wasn't the element of though the public's clamoring for yeah for this book so they're not going to have somebody come in and do that but if it's commercially successful enough it's worth the publisher yeah there's there's some element of like uh the author seeing their work as art versus i don't want to say like you know whatever but like yeah lit literature or whatever versus sort of the genre fiction i guess i guess there's some debate about you know kind of like the fantasy novel that gets completed or the series that gets completed it, it's a sort of almost like fan service in a way mm-hmm. that, that the fans want you know in the, in the case of the wheel of time that's a huge series and yeah. i can imagine if it didn't get finished that that would be yeah probably not well received even though the author you know whatever so yeah. Yeah. what do you think about my class good class there's only three books I mean, um, there's, there's extra projects. three days before the shooting is like 700 pages. Is it okay? So yeah. that's okay. <laughs> it's not- so can can maybe let me be annoying kid in class. Yeah, I'm Could ready. You bring like one extra. What sprang to mind was uh, it's kind of a fourth category. Yeah, unfinished, but Haruki Murakami's. He wrote two books just in Japanese. His first two novels, oh. Pinball. There's another one, mm-hmm. and he his third and the rest of them got translated into English. But those first two were just in Japanese, and he because he became and he became very popular. Yeah, and he insisted for a long time that he didn't want those original two translated into English because okay. he's kind of embarrassed. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. They eventually did. I don't know if that was a money thing or he's just finally, he's like, oh, whatever. I'm not embarrassed anymore. But like stuff like that. That is, I mean. I guess maybe if they were still in Japanese and hadn't been translated into English, if they were just. Yeah, that almost feels like, well, I mean, they they were published. I mean, it's just sort of, it'd be like, oh, I don't want my work translated into German. Biggest reading market, I guess, for him or, or... He, he's usually popular in Japan, but English. Yeah. His books are read very well in English. Yeah. That's yeah. I mean for whatever reason you're embarrassed about your early stuff. There could also be a segment where um kind of kids in the class can like talk about like we said, fantasy, like, let's say Patrick Rothfuss, like, is there any stuff that you're worried about, like, uh, not coming out in your life, you know, the author not finishing, 
Cormac McCarthy's had a book done for a long time. Apparently that's may not ever be finished his last novel. There's, okay. there's, there's kind of all these sort of like, you know, it's sort of like when a band hasn't, they're working on an album for like 10 years. Yeah. You're like, that's probably not going to come out. Well, I when Charles Portis died, I remember thinking, oh, I hope they find something in his desk. <laughs> you know, like I, yeah. you know, uh, but. well, and so, so I read a story, David Mitchell, Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a story he was talking about when he found his, his agent. He was a young writer and he submitted his first ever novel to an agent. And the agent told him, I can't buy this one, but I'll buy your next one. And this next one that became his first published novel was Ghostwritten. I want to read that first one. But here's the thing. Here's you know the I mean? question. Like, yeah. Is you're a fan, right? And yeah. people yeah. who want this stuff are all fans of, of, Mm-hmm. whatever author but it's ultimately sort of the author's choice in a way of course and it should be i'm just yeah. saying i would like to you no, know i i i, like, I, I, I agree okay, with you so long 50 years in the future long time from now yeah david mitchell dies and he's like burn my first my first manuscript that agent didn't want and you're the executor do you nod and pat his hand and then like you know I think he's too good a writer. I, I, I respect his, you know, wish. Here's what I would do. Yeah. I would say if I still had, if I still owned it, right. Like the rights were with whatever, whatever thing or whatever, I would maybe, I wouldn't sell it. So I wouldn't give it to a publisher, but I would think about like sending it, giving it to a, a, a library or something like a, a library that he liked or whatever so that people could study it as sort of like a completionist type thing. If he didn't want it published, we know what that cover art and all the sort of stuff and it to be like reviewed. So it gets reviewed, right? So if it's, if it's published and it's going to get reviewed, if he didn't want that for that book, I would say you kind of have to honor that. Yeah. That's probably ethical. Because, like, if you write something or I write something, we're like, this isn't very good. And then we die, and then someone's like, we should just publish this. Yeah. It's, I uh, don't know. <laughs> like, you're like, no, it really wasn't very good. I'd like, rather... I didn't think it was done. I didn't think it was good. So I don't, it's just, a, I, I find it kind of a, a kind of a fascinating subject. That's, um, that is fascinating. That's you, probably, do you yeah. know what that reminds me of? What they did to Harper Lee yeah. a couple years ago? That was terrible. That was, was another one that, that I was story, thinking about. That's not what they marketed that thing as a sequel to To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. It was a rough draft. Mm-hmm. She did not want published because it was it wasn't what became the beloved classic. Yeah, had dementia, and they went in there and got her to sign it, and then people were like, "Whoa, like what is this?" Like he, it, it was just totally different. The same characters. Yeah, you're like it was a terrible sequel. It's like yeah, because she didn't want she to publish. Want, yeah, it was, so it's it's harsh too to be like, "Hey, read my thing. I didn't want you know." Or, it was it was the rough draft of what became a classic. That like, yeah, that was bad. I remember like when that came out, I still worked at the bookstore, and I was like, "Oh, what is this?" And it kind of read. I read a little bit bit about it. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, these people took advantage of this lady and are publishing her like notes. It's it's marketing. I feel like we live in a time where everyone wants more and like, oh, it has to be good. Or I want I want every I want to consume everything. And sometimes it's like 
you get what you get and yeah trying to push for everything to be published or made into a movie or, or whatever is just like that doesn't always mean great results in, yeah. in the end uh i mean for in Kafka's case the trial is like widely beloved and whatever but still his instructions weren't really followed so yeah I don't know. It's weird because with the Kafka, it wasn't like his early work he was embarrassed about. It's like a later thing. Yeah. For whatever reason, I think the Kafka thing's fine. But with the Harper Lee or like the theoretical with the David Mitchell, like the early stuff, I think it would be ethical just to put it with, with the college papers and not publish. Yeah. So yeah. good class. Thank you. Good class. Okay. Uh, Matt, what is your class about? I think it's a good one. Okay. We got, it, it's, it's a loose, you, help me think of a title for it once you hear what it's kind okay. of um, First book. Six books, one short story, three movies. First book. Okay. The Confidence Man, Herman Melville. Confidence Man, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Write this down. I've actually read most of them. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Okay. Every bunch of passengers on a steamship don't know who to trust. Kind it's of actually there. very like, um, like it, it fits the time that we're in right now. Mm -hmm. Well, um, the, the, there's a yeah. Okay, the confidence man. Okay. Second book, the Blythedale Romance by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Okay. That is lesser known than House Seven Gables and the Scarlet Letter, but it is about a utopian community, like a agricultural farming community in the 1800s, which Hawthorne was actually a part of a community like that. You know, they kind of set out to change the world and, you know. You know, Hawthorne and Melville were friends. Yeah. Good buds. They had a little um, canoe, like out on the lakes in New England. They would like do a dual canoe, canoeing. You're telling Come me. Up. You're telling me. Yeah, picnic yeah. baskets and good buds. <laughs> good buds. The title of this course is like buddies in literature. Buddies in boats. <laughs> anyway, so utopian community, and it all kind of goes around. Like it, they they start out with the best of intentions, but human nature, jealousy, uh, people taking advantage of each other kind of ruins okay. the community, right? The third is from that era. It's a sh little short story, uh, but it kind of fits in, I think, with the theme and the tone I want to set for this course is The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, the okay. Washington movie. Which is a fun story. I read it last Halloween. It's a fun story. It's good stuff. So, okay. So those are the initial three. You know, read those first. They're from the same era. Mm -hmm. We're kind of setting the stage, like kind of early American literature. They all have to do with people kind of not being what they seem or good intentions going awry. For, that's the first chunk. Yeah. Move on to one of the most fun books I've read in a long time. Okay. Very good. It's called Big Con by David W. Maurer, M-A-U-R-E-R. -E 
And it is about, uh, it's nonfiction. It's David Maurer was a sociologist who kind of chose as his field of study, conmen, pickpockets, just old timey. This is like 1920s, 1930s type yeah. you know, era. And he just hung out with them. He got him to trust him, you know, used uh, fake names sometimes, but that was his area of study. And he just studied and documented con artists, how they went about conning people, uh, the games they played, all that stuff. It really is fascinating. Yeah. You know, there's the rag, the wire, the payoff, all sorts of like, it's amazing. I did not realize the extent of con games. Like you'd have people, you know, like transatlantic ocean travel was, uh, you know, a weeks long process. And so this, the, the, the con, the group, the gang of con artists would have somebody whose job was to just be on the boat and scope out rich, call them marks, rich yeah. marks were likely to get they'd befriend them like over a week or two you know like kind of sucker them into whatever game find out you know are you a businessman who's into stocks or horse racing or whatever and just lure them into this elaborate ruse they had set up you know like i know a sure thing like stocks you know like a sure thing to make money on stocks and so they get off the boat and they take them to this uh warehouse that had been converted to look like a, a, a horse racing you know, parlor yeah. stock, and just have all these actors as extras, like really, just to to, to elaborate. Get them, wow, you know, put put ten thousand dollars on this stock, and it's guaranteed to go up because I have an inside man in New York who's going to wire us the result. You know, you know, they, they just kind of set them up and play them over the course of a couple weeks to a couple months with with this elaborate theater production. You know, and there's an, yeah. another person to hand them off to. It's like. 40 different con artists with names like uh, the Postal Kid, Barney the Patch, Kid Duff, Little Bert, Larry the Lug, Slobbering Bob. I wow. have, I have a, at the end of your description, I have a, a little wrinkle. Yeah. But yeah, continue for your call. Anyway, so like that's, that's the book. And it, it really is fascinating. Like that's okay. kind of dive. It's all true. It's all, this type of thing happened at turn of the, the, the 1900s to about the 1930s and 40s before like the fbi became well it's uh, it's still going on today hang on hold okay. on to your hold on to your hat peter oh. anyway so so that's but <laughs> it really is good that type of thing right um and then we watch a movie the sting sting okay robert redford which is pretty much which was based on this book. I didn't know that until I got the book and read it because I, I watched uh -huh. the thing a bunch as a kid growing up. It was like a fun, you know, Paul Newman, Robert Redford con artist movie. There's a lot of movies you could watch. Yeah, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Yeah. Well, the Sting is is I started reading the Big Con and I'm like, oh, this is the Sting. And then I rewatched the Sting and it says based on the book by. It is like hey. the Sting was the. Like those cons, those names. Um, Paul Newman's character is, is Henry Gondorf. There's a real life guy named Henry Gondorf. So it, it's it's like perfect. Uh, yeah. I get the thing is halfway true in essence, you know. Okay. 
So we watched. I'm still trying to figure out. All right, continue. There's a kind of a loose theme. Okay. Um. Next book, jump forward a little in time. It's a book called Too Good to Be True, The Rise and Fall of Bernie Madoff. Oh. Right? And so... The tagline the door. is, um, d- 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 despite all the headlines about Bernie Madoff, he's still shrouded in mystery. Why and when did he turn his legitimate business into a massive fraud? How did he fool so many smart investors for so long? Basically, Matt and I both have sounds going. <laughs> it's a professional uh, podcast. And yeah. This part of the podcast is brought to you by Natural Sounds. <laughs> Continue. Bernie Madoff. Dogs barking the squirrels. <laughs> Bernie Madoff. Okay. Serious he, subject. He took a lot of rich people to the cleaners. Um, a lot of people who thought of themselves as kind of smart investors got taken in by him. Oh, one thing I should say in the can big- I Can I say something? It's probably going to make you mad. Why not? This sounds like a sociology class. I mean, yeah, yeah, ish. I mean, <laughs> it's, there's not, and there's not this big, big thing, like we're going to do all this and then I have a point and you're going to understand Yeah, my, yeah, yeah. My point, I really just want to read all these in the same course. Okay. Meditate on them and discuss. It, it really is like that. I'm not going to okay. like be pointing to, hey, here's the ultimate truth. It's just going to be like, just think about all these things in conjunction. Okay. I, I like it. So, one of the things in the big con that David Maurer talks about is the mark, the person they're taking for all this money has to know a little bit about business or horse racing or whatever you're taking them for. Okay. They actually kind of have to think they're smart. Because otherwise, there's a lot of ins and outs. You got to kind of play on their greed, and they have to see the angle of okay. how, you know, I'm willing to put up this money to make money. That little bit of greed, they have to like know a little bit about it. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like you can't just know nothing about business. You're not a good mark because you, you have, have to-, to think. You almost have to be like, oh, you know what? I'm actually pulling the fast one, or like you're. Yeah. Yeah. Almost in a way you're like, Oh, I, I know a good deal. Like you have some sort of confidence in yourself Yes, and yeah. you, you're almost like disbelieving that you could be. Um, yeah. Yeah. Kind of subjected to this ruse or whatever. Exactly. You have to at least be able to see the angles. Yeah. If you're just like, have, have no concept of what's being told to you, you're most likely just not going to do it. Cause you're just like, I don't know what's going on. Yeah. You're not a good market. Like, I don't know. Do things work like that? So you have to actually be knowledgeable yeah. to be taken advantage of. So with the Bernie Madoff thing, how did he fool all these smart investors? Well, yeah. It, it, it's yeah. Okay. I see. I'm starting to see more of like, it's that with the Bernie Madoff stuff and like the, it's almost like if you get recommended someone who you trust, like a, like, let's say, in Bernie Madoff's case, it was a lot of like wealthy people or wealthy organizations. And they, I would assume those people sort of, they all run in the same circles. So if someone says, oh, I'm investing with so-and-so, and they go, oh, well, you're rich, I'm rich. Well, I can send my money there with exactly. no like further kind of thinking behind it, you know? 
Mm-hmm. And so I feel like in that case, it's a lot of people that got scammed by. Um, he he got in with a clientele that seemed like, you know, they they think of themselves as, um, kind of immune to to the whole yeah. shenanigans that you're talking oh, about. Yeah, immune, yeah. So. yeah. Well, yeah. Next one. Okay. Comes out of the same era. Best book. I've ever read about the 2008 financial crisis. The Big Short? Nope. Oh. Griftopia by Matt Taibbi. Griftopia. Good. I recommend anybody who doesn't, is kind of hazy about what went on or anything and wants kind of a lucid detailing of it. And if you want to be really angry, read Griftopia. Okay, Griftopia. He deals with like Golden Sachs, Bear Stearns and kind of what went on there and it's been presented kind of in the media and it's become come into like public lore that it was just a big you know shenanigans and there were bad actors like bernie madoff but it was basically like a systems failure and and what taibi does is go into and say no it was deliberate fraud the system did crash but the people who caused the fraud knew what they were doing and they cashed out before everybody else lost their pensions and whatnot yeah and that's the point there is it's really detailed i highly recommend it it's not even that long but it's very good and in tandem with the bernie madoff stuff i want i want the students i want you guys to read these two things close to each other mm-hmm. and read about what goldman sachs did and what, what bernie madoff did and ask what's the difference why are goldman sachs people in government and still wealthy and bernie madoff in jail What's the difference between what they did? That's I, a very interesting point. Um, much. The I answer like, is, no, yeah. I, you know what I mean? So, and this is not to be taken as defense of Bernie Madoff. No, it's just. Not, but he was a bit of a scapegoat. Yeah, you, also, you have to have a, 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 what's it, a figurehead sort of a, of the thing. And he's sort of uh, the figure, like the. He, he lets. The Everybody. ultimate evil. Yep. Um, the system gets to cleanse itself. Because scapegoats don't always have to be innocent. But Madoff was guilty. Yes. 100% guilt. But his story, you could yep. tell a story in an engaging way. I'm not sure if um, the sort of the Goldman Sachs, the big corporation thing, um, the one that came to mind as sort of like a big corporation was like Enron that whole scandal a little before but yeah, a little bit before but sort of in a way i think the the why certain people get all the blame and maybe other people is there has to be just like once like one person or one company and it's hard for it to be like everyone's like hey here are 12 companies that were screwing you over that's like too much so there's like hey let's just have one mm. guy who represents every it's like when they say oh you know i combined a bunch of real life characters no oh, yeah. on, on like a tv show and it's it, it's portrayed by x or whatever and it's like well that's just multiple people that are like like that person and i think that's sort of the case with uh, kind of financial crisis or whatever it's the story well, was so complex they just needed to kind of keep it simple the news wow. or whatever and that was sort of the simple mm-hmm. story Sure. That assumes more more benevolence 
on their part, then I'm willing to. Or but he, he screwed over people that were really powerful and they wanted his story to be. I think I, I, I'm more cynical about it. I think that he, he took a lot of rich people to the cleaners. And so he became a perfect scapegoat. No, I, I, you know I, I mean? also I think, think that's probably true too. I don't think they're benevolent in their narrative. Like, oh, people just understand it better. No, I think they were guilty too. And it, the Madoff thing allows them to kind of push all the guilt yeah. on this person. And now looking back, because he Madoff just died mm-hmm. and all the news stories about his obituary and the news stories about him after he died were like, oh, he was the, you know, he was but- the guy. It's like no, he was just one of thousands of people. But I think also where the because you can sell the story and then if it just falls flat, then whatever. But you attach some like really famous people or whatever, and I it doesn't surprise me that the, that story stuck with yeah. everybody. Well, it's stuck, but I think it's a deliberate scapegoating. Yeah, thing. yeah. Versus like, hey, okay, so but you anyway. need a title for this class. Hold on. So, movie. We got two more movies. Okay. Watching. The first one, we're watching Glengarry Glen Ross. Okay. Which, have you seen that? I've seen that one famous scene, but yeah. Good movie. I, I understand the concept of it. Yeah. No, it's good. I just watched it, actually, and it's, like, perfect for... It's um an amazing... Got a bit of drama. Your like class to- is super depressing, I have to say. No, it'll be entertaining. It'll be fun. It will. It's not meant to be. It- Glengarry Gunn Ross is a fun movie. It, it just all these salesmen trying to sell people land. Can I have a one observation? I, I worry for you as the teacher of this course is <laughs> um, you're gonna have kids who take this class who are like, you know, kind of cynical and like you, mm-hmm. and then there might be kids who take the class and just be like. I want to learn how to be the confidence man. Yeah, they don't need college to do that. Okay. You're not, not going to corrupt. His minds are already corrupted. Okay, okay. Well, because they're not straight up confidence men in Glengarry Glen Ross. I mean, they kind of are, but they're, they're like so, always be there. Though that famous scene, yeah, yeah, the Alec Baldwin always be closing. Yeah. He's a jerk. And then there are the, the office is staffed with salesmen who are selling their shady land deals borderline they're kind of legal but you know they're selling swampland in florida like yeah. they make a bunch of money investing in like a condo but it, it it's a ripoff but and, and they're salesmen of various capabilities jack lemon's jack lemon really really good performance excellent actor yeah lingo but it really is a brilliant like embodiment of this desperate guy who's an okay salesman on a string of bad luck and just the desperation as his sales move clicks in anyway al pacino's character is kind of what fascinated me in this he's the best salesman in that movie and what makes him so good is he's he's selling you you see him interact with his client and he's selling the client not land he's selling the client he becomes the person selling a fascinating story about himself like a, a worldview Pacino's character in Glengarry Glen, Glen Ross if you go back and watch it is selling like a, a kind of wise jaded libertine worldview to this person and it works he's a good salesman because he knows he's not selling he's selling not even himself he's selling a worldview yeah competence and 
and, and you see this and you're like, oh, this is kind of a philosophical guy. And then he goes back to the sales office and he cares about, he, he, it becomes like a flip switch or a switch is flipped. And he only cares about winning a Cadillac and money. And he, he's told, they're totally conning their clients. The good ones know this, you know, it's just, they're all rubes to these people. And I guess your last movie. Huh? I guess your last movie. Yeah. You have one more movie, right? One more movie. Boiler Room? Nope. Damn it. More entertaining version of Boiler Room. Stop it. Boiler Room's awesome. No, the the most entertaining Wall Street movie. Wolf of Wall Street? Wolf of Wall Street. It's a little cliche. No, it's not. Boiler Room is when Ben Affleck plays a cheap knockoff of Alec Baldwin's. Uh, oh, his little speech to motivate the troops. That's a, a Glenn Rod, a Mammoth knockoff. Uh, okay. Anyway, no, okay. Wall Street is great and it's entertaining and it's satirizing the same things that I've been talking about the whole time with this course. Then so how, how are you going to connect the two? It's well, pretty easy. It's pretty well, easy. They just, connect. Melville is very different than Scorsese. What's it about? What's the subject? Matter? Well, I was going to say the title for your class should be called like something The Confidence Man, The Grift, The Lie, The Money, or something. I don't know. I mean, it, loosely, my working title is Con- Confidence Men in America. Right. That's pretty good. So, and the, 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 the you know, it, I don't mind saying it. The brilliance of my last two movie choices. What they show is kind of the institutionalization of con games, right? Uh, what about sales, this? Sale, the, 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 hold on. The salesmen okay. in Glengarry Glen Ross are essentially con men, but they work office jobs. They work at a desk. It, they get paid a paycheck, a commission. But So their work depends on them basically conning people, but it's to the point where it's like your office job, it's institutionalized. Like in the big con, you said those those you know those con games are still with us. Well, yeah, they're like desk jobs now. There's something about sales. There's something about in the Wolf of Wall Street, the Jordan Belfort did. It, it's it's institutionalized corruption, conning people, selling them something that you know is worthless to you're getting fired the, up. Right, but no, but that's that's exactly what it is. So all this stuff has been leading to. If you want to understand where we're at now, go back to Melville and Hawthorne and Washington Irving. It, it's just I just just kind of think about okay. what connects all these. I don't have any point beyond kind of what I'm saying. <laughs> Are you supposed to have a point? You know, what I, but, but you know what I mean. Like this, this is kind of meditate on this because this is kind of the the alternate the underbelly, the, the alternate history of the country. Like you flip over a rock, well, really polies or like uh, ants, the underside of all the weird insects. This is like kick over the rock. Do you know how they have uh, call centers like all over uh, yeah. the world where they call yeah. American citizens and try to like get their you know, scam their social security numbers or all the time about my do they call country. other countries do you think they probably call people with money other do, first you, do you think they call people in like france i have no idea if this is true but is it just america that the confidence man game is run you know you figure being europe too yeah 
It's interesting. No, there are. I didn't thought like, are we just the only country where it's like they're dumb? Like they will be. Well, I think we make an ethos out of it. I, I mean, there's obviously criminals and crooks everywhere, but I, I think there is something into our obsession with money and success being equated with money. Sure. There, there is something in the American ethos. My my little uh, wrinkle to your class would be at the end of your class, be like. This class wasn't actually for credits, and I'm not actually a professor here. Yeah, I'm a con man. And then you just walk yes. out, and everyone's like, what? You should be like, I have just stole all of your social security numbers. Good day. And then no, you throw what, a smoke would, bomb, and you walk out. If I want to get fired, I'd, I'd make something about how you guys are paying $80,000 to attend a public university to go work does with your liberal arts degrees yeah well yeah that would be that would, the dean would come talk to you then quickly after that one i'd teach one year one last book it might be too much but it's gonna you, you can, have way too much you can read it throughout the class okay right it doesn't have to be in order it can be kind of like a seasonal read. i would get rid of sleepy hollow to be honest with you no it's like 30 pages okay <laughs> and it fits in perfectly it it it's you haven't read it. It fits in. I just there's there's a, just a lot going on here in this class. Yeah. Okay. Good class though. Last book, the seasonal read for the semester. You can kind of read it at your yeah. leisure. Ties everything together. Comes out of nowhere. You're a fan. It's American Gods. A Neil Gaiman. I'm not taking your class at all. <laughs> no. It, I feel like in your class you would have a chalkboard and you would just have like like uh, the diagrams and webs and you would just have like string everywhere and you're just like you're a mark, you're a mark, you're a mark, you're well, a confidence man. You I think see that it's actually pretty straightforward. <laughs> it's pretty straightforward. There there's there's all are kind of vaguely linked. And just in American Gods, it's it's Odin. The American version of Odin is a con artist. Okay. Loki's in it. They're con artists. Please, I don't want to hear the story of this book. I don't like this book. Neil Gaiman is a British guy who lives in America now. So he's got a different set of eyes. He wrote a book about the gods of America, American gods, and they just happen to be con artists. I'm saying there's, you didn't get it. Because you don't know anything about Norse mythology. Stop. Okay, also, I didn't get it, but it was also 200 pages too long. It's perfect length. It's the perfect length. 650 pages. And it ties together because oh. Gaiman gets what Melville gets, what all these other people get, is there's a current that runs through American history. We think we're something else. Are we the con men or are we the marks? It all ties in together. The great class. That there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, yeah. I feel like there's a lot of work too. It's a lot. Yeah. It's a I'm lot not going to make work. you do it. If if you do the readings and participate in discussions, you don't have to do paper. I like that. I like that. I feel like there's a lot of discussions in this class. Read the books. We'll watch the movies, and then your you know your your final exam will just be an informal discussion. You know how long it takes to watch a movie in class, though. Mm, maybe that my own count. You, guys, you, you guys will watch it. 
uh, you guys go watch it with your little buddies in your dorm room <laughs> okay okay all right so spring semester is jam-packed we're talking about unfinished novels and we're talking about confidence men and how basically the underneath the facade of america it's been a rich vein of society and life of marks of dupes of dupes marks of people um you know what do you have to tell yourself to be that confidence man knowing that you're screwing people out of their money yep you you have to believe that the system is everywhere and if you're not doing it someone else will do it to you i feel like that's sort of the reasoning behind why people do it yep well, Ed Pacino's character, Glengarry Glenn Ross, talks about it's not a world of men anymore. He, he sees himself as a man, as an alpha man, you know, kill, yeah, like you're saying, kill or be killed, jungle yeah. type stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And every, the marks and the marks think they're smart and wise to the game. Yeah. That confidence lends, makes them a better mark. Right. It's, yeah. It's a good call. You take it. You talk yourself into taking it. There is, okay, I know you don't like the movie Boiler Room, but at one point they're selling stocks to a a doctor. Yeah. And they're like trying to give him whatever. And they say, you know, we can only do this amount of shares or whatever. And the doctor goes, you know, he goes, what? And he he seemingly wants to do more shares and, and risk more of his money, but they kind of, they do a smart thing. They say, no, let's just do a small trade now and then we'll go for the next. And it's like, if I say like, if I limit you now, that that sort of shows that maybe I'm on your side. I'm looking after you, but what they're really doing is saying, we're going to screw you over on this, on the second trade and then the third trade, and you're going to lose all your money to us. Maybe not right away, but in six months or whatever. Yeah. I just think about that. So. Yeah, exactly. Boiler room would have been a fine movie. Okay. Thank you. I just, I just, want, seen it in a while. I, I just wanted you to say that. Okay. I just watched the Wolf of Wall Street. So. Okay. Matt, you said we got an email. We did get an email. Was that a lie? A nice one. No, like a nice one. Like a good. Uh, it's not, yeah. It's not good from Ben Lerner, right? No, no, no. Doug, this is for real. On okay. Instagram, um, her tag is Journeyed. Um, her name is Kat. She's the author, Sam Ernst, who sent us his book. Oh, yes. Yeah, coming out in September. Okay. Uh, she's a big fan of Dumas and listened to the Count of Monte Cristo episode and was like, do you want to uh, hear my rundown of Dumas? I was like, yeah. I would love love to hear it. That is exactly why we mention our our email every episode is so people can do this. So it was actually really good. Um, We're excited to get it. Um, We are a Dumas fan club here at There Will Be Books. It whet our interest. And so she was actually, it's actually like a really helpful rundown of his work and kind of, Okay. I'll just read some pieces of it. Um, to, 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 I discovered Dumas through the Count of Monte Cristo when I was in the Peace Corps. Oh. Yeah, I kind of regret not joining the Peace Corps. <laughs> but uh, I had, you know, a few months when I had so much time to sit under the shade of trees and read. So the LinkedIn concerned me. I loved it, every word and started doing like what you said in your episode, going to every bookstore and straight to the D's to look for more books he had written. 
Turns out it's so much of what he wrote isn't published in English or hasn't been released in English for a long, long time. So they're, they're hard to find. Antique books are available for print on demand you know, in very poorly translated, edited English. Yeah. However, so some real gems. So there's The Three Musketeers, yep. Man in the Iron Mask, but there, there's also apparently a whole set of books connecting the two. It's a book called 20 Years Later. Yep about the four, like the Three Musketeers and D'Artagnan as middle-aged men. She says they're very funny. Um, the Black Tulip. This is a short, quirky story about growing a black tulip in the Netherlands. Uh, okay. Night of Maison Rouge. Ooh, I like it. I don't know how to say it. Fun adventure story. Only a fraction of the length of the count. Super accessible. Okay. We wrote a book called from absinthe to zest. Uh, um, it's the only nonfiction book I've managed to get my hands on, and it's the best. It's Dumas the foodie, a great cook, and a world traveler. Uh, so it's like an A to Z like book on cooking and food. really. That sounds yeah. really good. Interesting. Yeah, and it sounds great. She's got a book called George Jorge's George. It looks like George's. Don't make fun. I don't know French. She says it's terrible, but it's quick. Okay. I wrote a really <laughs> awful moment. Uh, so, yeah, that was actually it's just a really, really great breakdown of... Oh, nice. I We greatly appreciate it. He's uh, done a ton of stuff. Like, I kind of mentioned, he, he supposedly did, like, a Robin Hood. He was... All, it sounded like he was always busy writing. Like, yeah. It's but it's crazy, like... Like, just think about... The kind of Monte Cristo and how complex that was, and to like, you would think if you were writing that, like you or I, we would stumble upon so many aspects of getting that right for anybody who's like even like a, a not even an amateur, but like a good writer would be like, I don't know how to end this. I don't know where to go from here. And Dumas just goes, "Here's twelve hundred pages, and you're gonna love it." Let's just do like, it. God, I wonder how so much it is plowing forward. Like good writers, like literary writers, trip themselves up and worry about how it'll. Yeah, that's a good point. And he, like Dumas realized, like, hey, I just gotta end it. Let's just have the count get the girl and the revenge is had. Like, let's just just go. You gotta end it. There's Move something on. about just saying we're gonna. I'm just gonna finish the thing, and then the thing's gonna be done, and I'm gonna move on. I'm not. It almost seems like you can't just dwell on something too long. You, you can give gonna, a little thought to it, but you're gonna say, this is how it's gonna be. And you know, I'm not gonna second guess myself. And we're gonna have something done. And that's it. Somebody should have told that to David Foster Wallace. Well yeah, he had what the Pale King. He struggled with ending things and kind yeah. of tied up in not saying. So it's a common thing with authors, so Yeah. And like, I get it, you know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then she ends also no 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 to Muppets. Just no. Yes. Yes to Benedict Cumberpatch. Yes, so, yes. It's me against the world with my Muppet Count. You love the Muppets. So. I'm working on the screenplay for Muppet Count of Monte Cristo. Oh. <laughs> so, send us an email. Yeah. Uh, reach out to us on Instagram, on Twitter. We love hearing from you. We love your thoughts and opinions on books. Even if it's if you're reacting to an old episode of ours, uh, get in contact with us. And just you know, shoot us a, shoot us a line or, or note or whatever. We always put all of our contact information in the kind of the bio of uh, 
of the kind of the podcast there. So greatly appreciate it. Thank you, Kat, for for the Dumas breakdown. That is exactly the kind of information we're looking for. Yes. We kind of touch on books and people who know more about the author of the books. Like, let us know. Yeah. Uh, Upcoming, we're going to be having a podcast about Dune and Kitchen Confidential. So uh, be on the lookout for those. And then we'll be picking our May book club book of the month or whatever. Tongue twister. Right, now. May Book Club Book of the Month. May Club. May. There will be books. May Book Club Book of the Month book. I'm going to work on turning that into an acronym. (laughs) And on that note, we will talk to you soon.